at the socialist shelf have made no secret of this fact. Indeed, the world has made no secret of this. It is getting hotter. We've been talking about that over the last few episodes. Um, and what do you do when it gets hot, right? You know, you go in the shade, drink something cool, put on sunscreen. Maybe you go on podcast events about it. Maybe you write award-winning novels about what anthropogenic climate anthropogenic climate change rather does to the world, you know? Uh, and our guest today has done all of these things at some point in his life. He is a native of Cairo. He's found his way to Oregon currently by way of Qatar and Canada. He's a journalist of frankly astonishing experience. His work has appeared in the Globe and Mail, New York Times, Le Monde, Guardian, Guernica, GQ. He's written on the Afghanistan war, on Guantanamo Bay, the Arab Spring, the Black Lives Matter movements. Uh, he is the winner of Canada's National Newspaper Award for Investigative Journalism, the Goff Penny Award for Young Journalists, author of the acclaimed novels American War and What Strange Paradise, twice a finalist in the CBC's Canada Reads, compared very favorably to Philip Roth and Cormac McCarthy, and we agree. He is Omar Elikad. Omar, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. welcome. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh, I'm out in the woods here, just south of Portland, and um, it's the first break. It's the first cloud cover we've had in the better part of a month. So um, yeah. seems like a appropriate time to talk about. about has the heat wave been pretty hitting, the Has the uh, heat wave been hitting y'all pretty hard up there? Yeah, it, it's expected to be really bad next week. Mm. Next week, we're expecting triple digits. Uh, yeah. It's been mm. sort of. 80s 90s um so far this this past month or so yeah down in georgia we've been getting hit those like 95 but feels like 105 110 days because of that humidity just mm -hmm. absurd i don't know how much time you spent in our type part of the world i know you've written about it but uh yeah i mean i spent quite a bit of time there actually a couple of weeks ago i decided to do a writing retreat and i picked um arizona of all places and so i ended <laughs> up in this house in the desert uh north of phoenix and I wrote for about a day and a half. And then I said to hell with this. And I decided to go hiking and swimming instead. Fair and enough. So I did these hikes and it was like 110-ish. Wow. And it was like the walking dead. There were people passed out on the side of the trail. Like it Man. was, uh, yeah, it was, it was very apocalyptic. It's, it's, it, it's astonishing. You know, the stories coming out of Arizona, like, of course, you know, my family's in Texas, they're dealing with really terrible heat, but like, in Phoenix, I hear that like a good number of people admitted to burn wards and hospitals are just people who have fallen down and burned themselves on concrete, which is, it's incomprehensible, you know, just that something every day could be that hazardous, but, but there it is. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I grew up in Qatar and uh, we usually get at least a few 120 degree days every summer. And there was, I'm pretty sure, a law in the books there that um, every structure of any kind had to have a separate air conditioning unit for every floor, because if if you were in a, a house and the one one floor's unit broke down and that was all you had, like you you would die in there. Um, one of the wild things about it um, is, I think technically, you didn't have to go into work if it hit above fifty degrees uh, mm. Celsius, which is about one hundred and twenty-two. And so every night, the weather forecast for the following day would always be like 49 degrees, yeah. 48 and a half. Like, and everybody knew that that was bullshit. 49.999. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Imagine because, you know, as a kid, you know, you look at the uh, snow forecast, like you have to go to school. It's the, uh, you know, the opposite. You're looking at the heat forecast. It's, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember there was a time very shortly after the turn of the century, I just moved to Atlanta and like, 
it, it was a cold day, you know, not even a snow day. Just, oh, it's quite cold. I guess, you know, don't go to school, which <laughs> I mean, it just shows it just shows you what um, it just shows you what people what people adapt to or don't adapt to, depending on their conditions, um, which is which is something that um, I think that's a good segue, as good a segue as any to any to uh, get into your work. And uh, we love a good segue. Yes, I went through I went through segues like um, like, you know, somebody who goes through segues, you know. Mm. Um, <laughs> yes. So the uh, American war in particular is it's one of those that um, there's a civil war, certainly, but it's not as explosive as all that, you know, as 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 apocalypse or post apocalypse or, you know, um, on the way to apocalypse speculative futures go. Right. You know, it's because it's from the perspective of people on the ground who have no choice but to adapt to it, which um looking through you know looking through your work um over the years you know one one gets the sense that yeah you know it's it's not so it's not so far-fetched to see to see people like the chestnuts um in, in certain parts of the world mm. yeah i mean it's 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 a bit of a misleading book in the sense that it barges in through the door with a kind of um thesis statement that kind of proves fraudulent uh once you get into the book which is to say that it pretends to be an extremely American book. It's got American in the title. It's a second American civil war. It takes place in the U.S. and so on and so forth. Um, but also in that it presents this very sort of a post-apocalyptic or mid-apocalyptic, I suppose, premise. Mm. But really a lot of what I was writing, um, if not necessarily what people were reading, but a lot of what I was writing was a superimposition of somebody else's story overlaid onto the empire mm -hmm. and instead of setting the story in the heart of the actual war i sort of cast forward following the 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 hottest part of the war and instead i take you to a time of this kind of cold insurgency where the war is not fully over but it is kind of over and right. and i want it to be in that very unstable place but it is a book that pretends to be something that it very quickly sort of isn't which is i think well, one of the funny things about it is that when that book was about to come out before the book comes out it usually um the publisher will put a a, a sort of placeholder page on amazon and um i found out that my book had been listed on amazon when i got an email from a fox scout a fox studio scout they have these guys who just they look through amazon pages to look for new listings and this person had read the synopsis of american war and thought like, oh, we've got the new Hunger Games on our hands. Like, this mm -hmm. is amazing. And there was all this interest. And then once they read the book, they were like, eh, no. This wasn't what they were looking for. They mm -hmm. turned and ran. The uh, uh, To quote your book, it's not about war. It's about ruin. You know, it's, um, you know, it's, we, uh, it's interesting when we did our episode on American War and uh, people listening, you go back and listen to that if they haven't heard it. We got into that line specifically a lot because at first we we're like, is this sort of a line that sounds cool, but it doesn't really. But then we got into it. And it's like, oh, well, actually, there's not a whole lot of scenes of the pitched battles. We don't know a whole lot about that. We don't know. There's some kind of war going on in Texas. We don't really know what happened with that. It's not the point. Um, and I find that to be very interesting. And it's you know cool that you uh, sort of lead with that. I remember when I was reading it, I actually... Um, kind of went back and checked the dates because I was like, we just jumped past the parts where there's the. Oh, I get it. Yeah, it, it uh, and, and I, I find that to be, you know, very interesting. Um, a thing that we've talked about, um, it came up when we discussed uh, Octavia Butler's uh, Parable of the Sower. Um, 
is that a lot of apocalypse narratives um, to some people serve as an almost comforting story to people as in, oh, well, the consequences of the actions of sort of the modern world hit everyone evenly all at once. And we all are in the apocalypse together and it's socially experienced. Whereas ruin in real life is typically experienced unequally um, in, mu in, in much more boring often fashion and in a much more, um, you know, little by little sinks into the sea rather than we're all swallowed by, you know, whatever apocalypse you choose. Yeah. So could you speak to that, that idea of kind of like the bubble of people inside of it and it kind of sinks, um, you know, retracting and, and, and the, the sort of the concept of that, because that's the thing I thought about a lot working on your book. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think uh, I'm always reluctant to sort of break down any aspect of literature or writing into these sort fine, of yeah. clean binaries or anything. Sure, but I think sure. Generally speaking, there are, there are interpretations of the dystopian tend to fall under one of two categories, and it it's you can get all kinds of writing under both categories. But I think where the writer goes to, where they gravitate to of those two categories tells you something about the writer's world experience. And those two categories for me are people who think of dystopia as being systems, orderings of the world that are fundamentally broken. You know, something has gone horribly wrong with the, you know, the, the sort of minority report kind of vision mm -hmm. of dystopia. We have this system, look at it, go horribly wrong. But then there's another mode, and it's the mode that I tend to subscribe to more often, which is that what is dystopian about our world isn't broken systems. It's systems that are functioning exactly as intended. Sure. And so that's what I mean about the difference between sort of ruin and war. Uh, this idea that, no, this isn't a broken system. The system is helping exactly the people it was meant to help, and it's hurting the people it was meant to hurt. Mm. And that's a much more difficult thing to contend with both in real life and in storytelling in storytelling, because suddenly the sort of hero's narrative becomes much more complicated. In the other version, the hero's narrative is that you go and you take down the system or you, you break, you fix the thing that's broken with it and so on and so forth. What is a hero exactly supposed to do with a system that's functioning perfectly? Mm. You, you then have to think about, okay, who's benefiting from this? I mean, it's the same thing with, with, America's founding sins. You know, this country's geographic expansion was predicated on a genocide. Its economic expansion was predicated on slavery. Mm. Those were not broken systems. Those systems functioned exactly as they were intended to function. And a lot of people got very, very rich off of it. A country became very powerful off of it. Suddenly, the good and bad, black and white, very clean hero's narrative is much harder to overlay onto a situation like that. And I very deliberate, deliberately wanted to create a book that in in its overarching sense but also in terms of its individual characters mimic that idea there's nobody in this book that you can side with and not assume some level of moral debt and that mm. was very much an intentional thing on my part mm -hmm. yeah yeah no absolutely you know it's 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 that reading of it's that getting into the material drivers of war a um and viewing war as, you know, essentially, you know, a continuation of diplomacy by other means, you know, the the um, a sphere in which competing interests finally, you know, finally play out, um, you know, on a battlefield and what that and, you know, not even more importantly, what that does to individuals and how that sort of 
and how that sort of spirals off into violence that just that's that just uh, begets itself essentially um i'm thinking and, and it seems to me that um your journalism fits hand in glove especially with speculative fiction um you know you're very much in tune with this with this sort of synthesis of um environmental change right of political change forced you know on one sphere by another and human activity uh driving it existing within it um in particular um and this is drifting a bit to louisiana but you had an article from 2014 about louisiana's coast about land loss there um uh thanks to a concentration of industrial plants in a 3700 kilometer waterway leading into the heart of the country the mississippi river in southern louisiana is now home to the busiest port complex in the world some 65,000 people make a living here you go on and say you know essentially the um the map of louisiana that we see is a lie you know the coastline is constantly shifting constantly changing and so it's not hard to see an american war where you draw your mississippi sea from where you draw the chestnuts from um and in turn to get back even to the the um the political sphere you know it's it's interesting to see the parallels in camp patients right in the refugee camp in north georgia it's interesting to see the parallels in people in people so displaced seeing keys as this sort of um as this sort of rallying points um so I wonder, I wonder exactly when this started taking shape in your mind as a, um, as you know, not just something that you wanted to um, express the factuality of in journalism, but also um, where the line was for you that you that you were like, you know what, I could also say something that I want to say in fiction. Yeah, absolutely. I, I fiction's always been my first home. Mm. It's my first avenue of retreat. Um, when the world doesn't make sense, I immediately retreat into fiction. Um, that's a function of, of my natural temperament, but also a function of the kind of life I've had. You know, I'm, I'm Egyptian born, but I haven't lived in Egypt since I was five years old. Mm. Since the age of five, I've been a guest on someone else's land and I've been moving around in such a way that for the remainder of my life, nowhere on earth is ever going to feel like home. And I th I'm thinking of home here as a site of ownership, you know, like this is mine. Um, for me, geographically, that doesn't exist. I could go back to Egypt right now. I could stay in Portland for the rest of my life. I could go back to Canada. There will never be a place that meets my definition of home. And so fiction is a good place for people like me because you get to alter the contours of this invented world to fit your very specific makeup. Ironically, the writers I admire, the writers in my pantheon, are all writers who had the exact opposite experience. They're people who grew up and marinated in a single place and described the hell out of that place. You know, Naguib Mahfouz, Alice Munro, uh, Toni Morrison, people who knew their country really, really well. I will never know any country really, really well. And you can see that in American War. Um, you can see all of it, right? When the first thing you see when you open that book is a map where I've sunk the Eastern seaboard and Florida's underwater and I've moved the capital. I have very little respect for the, the concept of the nation state as a geopolitical entity, both as a function of my upbringing, but also because I was born in a part of the world where a hundred years ago, a bunch of British and French guys sat around drawing some lines on a map. And as a result, we have Lebanon. Right. There's an element of sort of um, overarching outsider control that makes that gives me a sort of, sort of second level distaste for the entire enterprise. Um, I got into journalism because it paid the bills, because it allowed me to do something adjacent to writing fiction um, and get paid for it. 
Uh, it was the education that I never got in college. You know, you, you spend 10 years with a bunch of very unsentimental back desk editors. They're going to clean up your writing real quick. Like mm. you're going to learn some hard lessons about putting words on a page. Um, journalism for me was invaluable as, as a means of, of being in the world. But fiction's always been my first home. One of the ways I think about, about those two modes of writing is like antagonistic muscles. So the only sport I do is rock climbing. Rock climbing is a lot of pulling. Yeah. My pulling muscles are very overdeveloped. I can barely do a push-up. <clears throat> that that tends to lead to injury, right? Um, when you don't balance out the antagonistic muscles. Journalism and fiction for me are antagonistic muscles. Journalism by definition is about answers. If you don't have answers to who, what, where, when, how, by definition, you don't have a piece of journalism. Mm -hmm. Fiction is where I go for questions. Um, questions that I don't have answers to, knowing full well that after writing about it, I will continue to not have answers, but I will have thought about the questions more deeply. And so for me, they are twin modes of, of engaging with the world using the only means I know how. I'm useless at almost anything except writing. Uh, and so they they provide a kind of complete sphere of, of operating in the world. And um, the, the fiction, since I became a journalist, basically at the age of 19, when I joined the student newspaper onwards, my fiction has been populated with details, uh, not just physical details, but emotional, psychological details from the world of journalism. It has yeah. populated, I mean, Emerald Creek, which runs through Camp Patience, that's a real wastewater ditch in the NATO airfield in Kandahar. Wow. Uh, it's the worst smell you will ever come across in your life. Um, so there's little details like that, but then there's also the people I met on these assignments and the way you see power at work, the way you see how much of our society is structured around a necessary portion of that society being labeled subhuman. Um, all of that stuff works its way into the text. And in the case of Louisiana, I had started sketching out American War, and I had this sort of thesis statement for a book but I didn't know where I was going to start it. And then as soon as I got down to Louisiana to write that assignment, I knew this is exactly where this book needs to start. Yeah. In a book that's so concerned with what the United States has done in the world, I want to set it in a place where the world is doing something to the United States. So it, it clicked mm -hmm. for me as soon as I arrived. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I think uh, I love that pushing and pulling is very like dialectical, if you want to use that word for it. It's almost literally, but the... Um, you talking about the authors made me interested. You were saying, you know, you you've connected with authors who are very grounded in their location. I actually, um, when I was reading, you know, your book, and also I read your short story, River. What is it, Riverbed? I believe. Mm -hmm. um, I thought a little bit of. Have you read much Flannery O'Connor? Yeah, um, yeah. I was thought of Flattery O'Connor and you actually have a, a scene um, in American War. It's pretty brief set in Milledgeville, where it was her home, where she lived her entire life. It's where I went to college. I studied writing there. Um, you know, so the, you know, that's a, that's a shameless, uh, I'm like shamelessly, you know, home, you know, hometown, my writing hometown, Flannery O'Connor. We love, we love it there. And also uh, it's awesome because you don't hear Milledgeville mentioned much, but it made me think of, you know, that, that sense of location, um, it was, you know, very cool. I'm talking about the mugginess and the air and the, uh, you know, just the setting and talking about, uh, you know, in with us being from there and, uh, you know, you, you, you know, you made the joke, you know, sorry that georgia through so much and it is an interesting point um when we were talking about the show we were obviously making the 
point that when one writes a piece of fiction, especially speculative fiction or dystopian or any fiction that happens in the future, quote unquote, it's not a predictive text. It's uh, making a reflection on the current world. It's saying, hey, maybe, um, you know, we made the joke. Nobody thought that Brave New World was actually going to happen. Like no one thought we were going to actually worship Ford. The point was about the relationship of, you know, the, the mode of production to the world. Um, and in the same way, you know, you have a very, you know, your story feels very grounded. Elements of it feel very possible, but of course it's not a sort of predictive text. Nevertheless, there are a lot of bad trends um, in the world right now, especially, uh, or certainly in American society, certainly in, you know, talk about Florida, talk about Georgia. We see it every day. We fight against it when we do our political organizing. I was wondering if you could speak to maybe some of the trends you see developing you know, in the United States, some of this reaction, stuff to do with climate change, and, you know, how you think maybe they correlate to what you've written about, correlate to what you've seen, and potentially some ways that we can push back on that. Do you, do you what are your, what are your thoughts on that? I know that's yeah, a big, big question. No, no, it's, I mean, I, I apologize in advance for my incredibly unsatisfactory answer, but no, it's, that's fine. Um, There's no one answer. <laughs> It's easier for me to answer the first part of that question than the second, right? The first part about the trends for me is all related to the single overarching thing that scares me more than any individual facet of, of, and there's a lot of derangements in in the United States. Um, One of the few, you know, it's hard for me to make political predictions, but one of the few that has sort of worked out for me unfailingly over the last 10, 15 years is, for example, if you want to know the future of the Republican Party, take whatever is on the fringes right now and assume that it's going to be in the center a few sure. years from now, which has essentially been the case. Um, mm-hmm. But those are it's sort of those all fall under a, a bigger umbrella for me, and and that that larger overarching thing is that we are entering, and in fact are have already arrived at a moment where our biggest literally existential calamities, I mean, potentially species ending calamities, all require a communal response. And they are colliding with, in the United States, a society whose every mechanism is tailored away from the communal good and towards the individual good. Right. That is gonna come to a head, it's already coming to a head. But, you know, one of the, the stories I often go back to is I was I was in Florida writing a story on climate change. And I was talking to this professor who's been sounding the alarm on this for 30 plus years. And he will go to any community group that'll have him and he'll give his presentation. And what he does when he goes into any neighborhood is he'll bring with him a relief map of that neighborhood with a bunch of overlays. Here's what your neighborhood's going to look like with one meter of sea level rise, two meters of sea level rise. And he said that unfailingly, without almost without exception, at the end of these talks, somebody will walk up to the map and point to, to a spot and say, oh, my house is going to be okay. And he'll say, yeah, you live on a hill. You still need a canoe to get to the grocery store. Like, you must see this, right? But it's it's a society that it has become psychologically, emotionally, and perhaps most dangerously, morally attached to the notion that individual well-being is a prime objective Mm -hmm. and that the idea of tempering that individual well-being in any way 
even if it's for something as, as relatively straightforward as saving the species from going extinct, is still a terrible and, and immoral thing. That to me is terrifying, right? Because it, it fuels everything else. No matter what a political candidate says about, hey, we need to cut down fossil fuel use or else we're all going to die or else your grandkids are not going to have a life. No matter what evidence you present, there is someone on the right wing of that spectrum who can step up to the podium and say, he wants to raise your taxes. He wants to lower your quality of living. Now you're going to go to the grocery store and instead of six kinds of tortillas, there's only going to be one kind of tortilla on the shelf. Are, are you willing to live in that dystopia? And it's fascinating for me that that works. It works really, really well. Um, that that is, is, at a certain point, becomes more intractable than any other facet of, of America's culture wars. Um, I'm currently working a story on, on library book bans, and every story I hear from these librarians who had to literally leave their homes and move to a different state because of death threats. Um, That is all terrifying. It's also, again, under this greater umbrella of how dare you put anything in the way of my individual ceilingless existence. Um, And if we lived in a fantasy world, that'd be perfectly fine, but we don't. We live in a world that is quite literally burning up um so that doesn't sort of answer the first part of your question but it is it is to me the trajectory that i'm most most concerned with in terms of what we do about it i mean at a practical level the overton window in the united states is more skewed than anywhere i've lived in the notion that like by the standards of most of the rest of the world i'm fairly left leaning by the standards of the United States, I'm some kind of communist sort of, you know, far, far left. That's because in the United States is very, very important to maintain this fantasy that there exist two parties, a left-wing party and a right-wing party. And in fact, there is no truth to that. The United States has a center-right party and a fascist cult. Yeah. And, and how... It needs to shift the entire perspective on every issue to make that not be the case is something that needs to be fixed. Whether you agree with left-wing politics or not, or whether you are very much conservative, wherever you fall on that spectrum, the view of the spectrum is through a funhouse mirror. And I think that needs to sort of shift. Um, At a practical level, I think this country becomes very, very obsessed every four years with a single election. And I think it's far, far more important to make sure that full-on fascists aren't getting on your school board and your town council um, because the president is not going to run your school board, Mm. whereas eventually everything is going to work its way up from the school board onto the state level and the county and the federal and so on and so forth. Um, So I would imagine people becoming much, much more engaged with the most boring aspects of, of the political process would do a world of good because once you hear what a lot of these folks have to say, it becomes much easier to call them out uh, for what they are. I remember covering a Trump rally uh, in Oregon and it was exactly what you'd expect for the first 25, 30 minutes. 
And then people started getting bored and leaving mm -hmm. because it became clear that this guy was up on stage freelancing and had and was a complete idiot and had no idea what the hell he was talking about. Um, the more you can do to sort of unmask the the the, the sort of camouflage, you know, um, the better. I am I am a deeply pessimistic person by by uh, temperament, but I do think that people focusing on on the smallest levels of the political process can lead to good things happening upwards, whereas becoming deeply obsessed with the federal election, the presidential election once every four years, very rarely to good deals leads to good things flowing downwards. Um, yeah, my my husband often says uh, I'm a pessimist, so I'm. I you I'm either right or pleasantly surprised, um, you know, and exactly. that is and that that's, you know, it's understandable. I, I think also you're talking about the every four years thing it goes back to that consumerist culture, that individualist culture, because it's like you can do politics by watching the TV and then you can do a vote and you can feel like you're a political person. You know, mm -hmm. you do one vote, you know, whatever. And, and we're not, you know, anti-voting or anything. The point, the point is more so just that, that you're like, what you're saying is that that work needs to be put in, isn't the same level of like spectacle and, and enjoyment. And, and that there's just a, it can be boring knocking on doors and having conversations with the neighbors and passing out flyers and whatever, and whatever mm -hmm. it takes to organize on your local level. That's, you know, that's a whole different conversation, but, you know, I mean, Joss and I, I don't even know how many doors we've knocked over the last few months, but it's like, that's it kind of, it's kind of boring sometimes, but that is actually what has to be done. And that is a sort of a, that is a challenge for a very individualist culture. And that doesn't, and that's not a uh, thing that I'm saying, oh, all these right-wingers, all these whatever. No, most people in America, even, you know, left-wingers, even people who are mostly, you know, online who identify as whatever, feel, do that. They feel that way. They are not actually actively engaged. And that is mm -hmm. a thing that, you know, we try to, to speak to, but um, it's like, we're ready to vote right now if we could, you know? Right. And it's like, like and great. But then what are you going to do for the next four years? Or, you know, mm -hmm. if you're, if you're great and you vote every two years, okay, what are you gonna do for the next two years? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's very absolutely. much, it's, it's very much, you know, um, you know, what you're, what you're speaking of Jacob is, yeah, it's all the stuff that takes place between uh, election cycles. I mean, voting essentially it's, 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 it's important, yes, you know, but it's at the end of a long, long chain of political action that, you know, produces the conditions in which you do vote. Um, you know, it's it, and it's interesting to me, you know, you um, um, you provided this word for me, Jacob, you know, the, the sort of people who are like depoliticized, you know, I'm thinking of various various parts in um, in uh, southern Georgia that we visited. Right. Mm -hmm. um, who are maybe conservative by default. Right. You know, but who, you know, no matter where you are in the political spectrum. Right. You all have the same needs for, you know, education, food, whatnot. And, you know, people, some people, you know, some people are hostile to the kind of organizing we do there, certainly, but some people are very responsive to, yeah, you know, we have an enormous prison, but no grocery store, right? Mm -hmm. um, Folks in Georgia, so, yeah, we were there for a little while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It's, it's that, so it's that, um, it's that element of, um, it's certainly that element of, um, uh, of individualism and, disengagement from the political process from the process of um influencing how resources are allocated and spent um that we have to contend with um and where it manifests in american war is interesting um because i'm thinking right now of all the various uh, militias that pop up in the free southern state right and we get into this a little bit in the episode but it's like you know there's never more than like 10 of any one of a particular tendency 
You and, nailed it with that. <laughs> that yeah. cracked me up when I first read it. Yeah, that's so and that's, in, that's interesting. You know, it, it's like there's a whole bunch of you know vanity cults of um, of um, you know reactionary reactionary militias essentially that don't really. I mean, they're brought under control by the end of a single authority essentially, but they don't really of themselves coalesce into a single tendency. Is um, and I don't know what it, what we would do with that exactly. Is that more? Is American like hyper individualistic fascism like more dangerous than you know the sort of the sort of Hitlerian stripe everybody's familiar with? Why is it less dangerous? You know, is it something entirely new and unpredictable? You know, what um, what does it say to you about how reaction tends to manifest? How militancy tends to manifest in that sector of our society? Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of that structure was was predicated on again superimposing another person's story onto the heart of the empire sure you know i often go back to this notion that if i'd written american war 100 years ago i would have had to call it british war because the point wasn't to set it in the united states the point was to set it in the heart of the superpower um and i i, I also go back to this jorge luis borges quote about how all literature is tricks and that no matter how clever your tricks are they eventually get discovered my central trick is not particularly clever it's inversion. I take something that's headed this way and I make it head that way. Mm. And in this case, you know, I talk a lot about, about this idea of, of the direction of, of um, like if you, if you watch, for example, any James Bond movie or any Jason Bourne movie, there's always a car chase through a Moroccan bazaar scene on a Caribbean island. It's fully understood that the place is the table. The tablecloth being laid on top of it is someone else's story. And all I was trying to do was invert that and make the U.S. the table, um, which is not a place that this country is used to. It's not a position this country is used to to sort of taking. Um, I wanted to overlay somebody else's story onto it. And so, you know, for example, if you look at a place like the Middle East, it's full of these factions. And a lot of them really are just two guys mm. out somewhere. And they have no hope in hell of of doing anything but the sense of agency that comes with that agency and allegiance are two monumentally important things in, in predicting human behavior, particularly at times of calamity. Um, there's this famous quote about World War II. I think it was a Susan Sontag quote about one of the central lessons of World War II being that 10% of people are innately good and 10% of people are monsters and the other 80 can be swayed in either direction. Mm -hmm. um, and I think about that a lot because I think cowardice is, is contagious, but so is courage. Um, so, it was important for me to specifically highlight what I think is a facet of, of societies in decline, which is these fracture points where you end up with groups of two guys who have no chance in hell, because what that represents for them is almost agnostic of result. Um, you know, you go, you go into towns and this is, this is largely you know, neoliberalism is largely to blame for a lot of this, right? It's, it's sort of, it sold people on on an idea that was 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 fundamentally immoral and sort of uh, fundamentally Machiavellian in a way that you can't you can't really be surprised when that turns on you, right? But you go into you go into some of these small towns and and it's almost like that sign that says like get your government hands off my Medicare or whatever, right? Like this notion of like you you must see that this is against your best interests well fuck my best interests 
this is what the group of people I love and who support me and who actually talk to me and who I don't feel are disrespecting me or looking down on me. This is the stuff they believe. Mm-hmm. This bonds us together. And so to hell with, with, with the tangible results of this. I mean, Obamacare was kind of this like magnificent sort of case study in this. Yeah, no doubt. That allegiance and agency are, are far more important to many, many people than beneficial results or positive positive outcomes, you know, that that sort of thing. Um, that to me is a is a really interesting facet of the human condition. And and that that's where a lot of the fault lines of the free secessionist state, the free southern state, um, those fault lines are not built around an expectation of winning. Winning is out the window. They're sure. built around an expectation of tribe. In a lot of ways, you know, they've already lost by getting to that point. You know, the, the it's it's uh their their uh corpses looking for more comfortable graves, I think is uh is a way Joss put it when we discussed it. Um but it's a um you know it's interesting, you know, just to see that ended to see that superimposed on, you know, our our society. And there is and I know you're pulling you're saying you're pulling from, you know, you know, other settings and whatnot. And I was uh, curious because you know you, you you're pulling a lot from you know these Middle Eastern struggles and, and whatnot, and in American War, you know there is this big uh, you know Middle Eastern Union that has come up, and it's come up out of a uh, you know series of Arab Spring like events. Um, and I was curious, um, you know, your thought. Your I was uh, was there more to that you feel than just sort of trying to do the inversion thing or do you see this sort of future for this middle eastern unity um or north african unity or whatever what what do you think that looks like i know it's i'm not not asking you to say what's going to happen but um you know of course you know the arab spring i know you covered it um and it was uh, probably you know more in the public consciousness when this uh you know when this book was written um you know there haven't been as many like, successive stuff we see some interesting things happening over there. We see some interesting things happening in North Africa right now. Um, I, I don't feel qualified to comment on it or know what's going on. I think we'll know what's going on 10 years from now, probably. Um, but um, it, it sort of takes some time to get to it. But I was wondering if you have some thoughts on, you know, the future of that region of the world and how it relates to the United States as we sort of enter this new era of climate disaster, multipolarity, and um, you know, just just a general new strange century, as as I put it. Yeah, it's you know, it's funny. In in the book, um, the creation of that empire was basically just an inversion in the other direction. I right. took the creation story of the United States. A bunch of people rise up against perceived tyranny, and from a number of different states, create one sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I did cover the Arab Spring. I was. Um, I was there in the aftermath of it. I was there actually immediately before it started too. Um, And it it was, I think for me, and and I have the privilege of being able to do this, but it was for me, the the, the sort of straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, I had my heart broken um, by the Arabs. I really believed um, that, that the change was going to be fundamental and permanent. And I don't know, I do know why it was an emotional reaction to the moment. You know, you see these people who up until that point, uh, Egypt had had one president for the entirety of my lifespan. And um, it was one of those situations where it was the kind of place where you just kept your mouth shut, where the single most important life lesson 
that you could sort of carry and convey to your children is shut the hell up. The walls have ears. Um, the secret police are among the the most well-developed in the world. They are like the SEAL Team 6 of evil underground tactics. Um, one of the reasons we have people like bin Laden, we have the, the, the Al-Qaeda, it, it begins in Egypt. There's a guy named Sayyid Qutb who was this sort of mildly racist political philosopher, uh, an Islamist, went to the U.S., was deeply offended by jazz and American football and came back and said, you know, hey, what I think we should do is have Islam be one of the foundational aspects of political political life, which is not a sentiment I, I agree with, but it's a sentiment I can debate. You know, mm -hmm. like, that's not that's not beyond the pale for me. I'll sit down and debate somebody about that. Uh, the Egyptian government did not want to do that. Instead, rounded this guy up and all his supporters, threw them in the secret prisons, uh, electrocuted them, let out wild dogs on them, tortured them uh, in a way that radicalized them so much that by the time they came out of these prisons, they were no longer talking about, hey, we should do this. Now it was full Islamic overthrow of every, you know, they'd become radicalized precisely by these entities that still exist in full force today. You will still be thrown in scorpion prison if you say the wrong thing. And these things, they have perfected um, torture. They have perfected means of destroying human beings. Um, and I believed that this revolution was going to overturn all of that. The problem with revolutions is that they represent a brush fire. You burn the brush. The root systems, much, much harder to burn. And so what you had in a place like Egypt was, hey, the figurehead, he's been removed and people are out celebrating as they should, right? This guy is, I mean, one of the, one of the things about Egypt is in the lead up to every quote unquote election, which is not an election at all, of course, it's rigged, um, you will see these billboards months ahead of the election, congratulating the president on winning the coming election. And the point of these billboards is not the content. It's the name of the businessman who paid for the billboard. He puts it in the biggest writing on so that the system knows who's kissing its ass. Right. Um, this is the kind of world we're talking about. And finally, we've we've gotten rid of the figurehead. Fantastic. How about the judiciary? How about all these like anonymous middle manager types? A revolution is not a healthcare policy. A revolution is not an economic policy. A revolution is people who are so fed up that they're willing to put their lives on the line for anything other than this. The problem is that you then have a tiny amount of time in relative terms to build an entirely new root system. Meanwhile, the old root system is flowering new new life. Uh, and that's exactly what happened in Egypt. They ended up getting rid of the figurehead, having new elections, electing an idiot, electing a guy who didn't know what the hell he was doing. The military used that time to regroup. They came back into power. And now we're possibly worse than back at square one, where it's sort of square negative one, mm -hmm. because the military and the authoritarians have learned their lesson now. They're never going to let it get that far. In the long run, um, maybe I'm naive, but I still I still firmly believe in this idea of the moral arc of the universe bending towards justice. And I, I do think that people will become so fed up that they will do this again and they will succeed. I have to believe that as a function of survival. Um, 
but what's the body count between now and then right. how many lives are destroyed in the process that that i can't i can't allow my my hopefulness to to discount or mask the reality that there are countless human beings whose lives are currently being destroyed for trying to do the thing that i think will work out in the end so i'm i'm hopeful but i'm not unrealistic i think absolutely absolutely yeah i mean it's 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 a um it's it's sort of i mean we i mean we talk about it a lot you know like revolution is in a sense you know there is there you know there's there's historically this sort of this sort of um acknowledgement that okay you know contradictions eventually sharpen to such a point that yeah people refuse to go on being ruled in a certain way but then exactly what comes next once once the um once that's once that's overthrown and it's and it's interesting the um um I was thinking about this actually. Um, so your your story Riverbed appears in a in a um, in a collection edited by Victor Laval, right? Um, and he's on our mind, and he's on our mind lately because he wrote a book called The Ballad of Black Tom, which is you know I'm a, I'm a Lovecraft head, right? And so that's and to to read that kind of um, um, pastiche of one of his stories from the perspective from the perspective of you know some somebody Lovecraft would have hated a black man um was interesting to me because like it's it, it's it deals with you know it's got that lovecraft country sort of uh sense of you know um this ruling class um taking a step further even further beyond the pale right you know messing with forces they don't understand and um ultimately it it uh it goes back on them right and you have this 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 uh, black protagonist actually sort of embracing and helping along the um um the horror that they bring into this world you know because the sense the sense here is okay well you know i already i've i deal with with something so you know the sense from somebody who's who's on the receiving end of you know these everyday horrors is okay i deal with um such arbitrary terror in my daily life already what is one more thing you know which is and and that's interesting to me you know you know the the sort of perverse like the ultimate sort of uh perverse uh privilege of a um of a ruling class of that stripe is the ability to create their own monsters effectively, right? Um, which is why, um, which is what makes uh, you know Sarah's ultimate fate so poignant, right? Because like the proximate cause of her making the decision that she makes at the end of American War is you know this lifetime of existing in in a system that essentially only has space for spite. Yeah, Sarat for me, I mean. Once she showed up, the story became hers. I mean, there was there was no doubt about that. And I talked earlier about those like guys from Fox and wherever who ran away um, after reading the book. We had a bidding war for the film rights for American War, and I didn't know what to ask for. I don't know what the hell an executive producer credit actually means. Uh, you know, I I ended up asking for two things. I asked to, that they maintain the racial backgrounds of the characters. And that they not Disneyfy it, that they not tone it down, and both of those requests caused production companies to walk away. Um, the ending of American War um, has has gotten me a lot of flack because I think, and this is one of the few things that American War in my second novel, this book called What Strange Paradise, this is one of the few things that they have in common. I could have ended both stories a few pages earlier and had a very different book, yeah. um, but that wasn't the story I set out to write. To me, a big narrative arc of American War is about Surratt's circle of trust. When we first meet her, 
she's she's very smart, she's very curious, but she's also very trusting. Her circle of trust encompasses almost anything anyone tells her about the world. And the more damage to which she's subjected, the more that circle closes in to encompass just her family and then just certain members of her family. And then by the end of the book, all it really encompasses anymore, the only thing she still trusts, the only thing that hasn't let her down yet is her sense of revenge. And so the book for me is, is very much an exploration of a path that I would hope most people would never walk down in the first place. You know, I remember doing a panel with another writer who was talking about how in her community, the response to injustice is love. And I thought that's a really admirable thing. And I hope that if I'm put in a position to experience that level of injustice, this was an indigenous writer. So the level of injustice is not subtle or, or slight. I would hope that if I put in the same position that I would respond the same way, but this book is specifically about someone who doesn't respond that way and how we think about someone who is damaged and as a result of the damage becomes damaging. Um, so that's the way, that's why the book is structured the way it is. And that's why it had to end the way it did. Um, but I mean, I can tell you in a previous, a previous attempt to make a movie out of this, which fell through, um, the screenwriter did everything in his power to veer that thing towards literally any other ending. And there were some wow. bizarre endings where you, you could almost have like the end question mark afterward. Like they were trying everything in their power because it doesn't fit the, the narrative, right? I mean, you, you read that kind of story, enough of those kinds of stories have been told in the U.S. with with the exact different ending, right? Mm -hmm. Um but I, I, you know, there might have been a more successful version of American War that went a different way, but um, it wouldn't have been the book I set out to read to write. This it it had to be what it was, for better or worse. You know, we prior to covering um, American War, we covered Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian because um, he he had just passed away, so we moved up the schedule to talk about Blood Meridian sooner. Um, it was on our list later on. And that's another book that has resisted uh, a film adaptation uh, because of what it is. Um, also, I'll just say reading Blood Meridian and American War back to back, pretty intense. <laughs> Why would you do that? Oh, yeah. To yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's, it's, a, it, it's a very sort of I mean, it makes sense how you get one from the other, doesn't it? You know, yeah. it's this this country that you know, it's it's predicated on, um, you know, the super exploitation of, you know, everybody who isn't you know white and wealthy property you know and sort of how that how that orbitus eventually eats itself when there's you know when there's no ability left to go over into do settler colonialism you know mm -hmm. to to uh to maintain that sort of hegemonic position in in in, in the world you know it's 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 a self-cannibalization yeah i think um it's also interesting because it's uh Blood Meridian has this whole element of like this is the West and you know America generally how it was conquered and then you know it's contradictions that it creates coming home to roost in stories like American War and others uh, though Blood Meridian of course the characters experience pretty immediate consequences as well of that um everybody but judge holton but that's that's another episode um but um it's interesting because we thought a lot about this and, you know living in georgia i think it's like relevant as uh, as we see a lot of that presently really coming home um in like local struggles we are dealing with some serious 
Um, I know everyone's dealing with some serious environmental issues, but we're dealing with some serious environmental challenges, both just from climate change, but also on a direct level. We have the swamps in South Georgia right now mm-hmm. are being obliterated, like recently just sold off to be mined. Um, and that's a, you know, that's a huge I mean, not only is it a source of natural beauty, it's important. The forests around Atlanta are being raised to build one of the biggest, if not the biggest police facility in the United States. It's going to have a Black Hawk helicopter landing pad. They're going to have an explosive testing facility. Sounds like a joke, but it isn't. Um, And there's a struggle happening in Atlanta every single day. It feels very dystopian. It feels more, honestly, it feels more Hunger Games than anything else. We referenced that earlier. Like it feels very like almost over the top, like a, uh, a level of like, it's over to America to be American, but um, there is a, uh, but yeah, me thinking about that and thinking about the contradictions that have emerged even over the last few years and the challenges we've come through since writing American war. Um, how, how do we feel like, and also this is a question that I was sort of asked to ask by our guest that we had on for the American war episode. How do you feel like your own outlook on, you know, America and the arc that we are on and that the world is on climate wise and, you know, with the rise of the right, in their the right wing's own strange project, how has your perspective on that shifted? Do you feel like it has? Do you feel like your own politics or outlook on things have shifted? Um, and uh, if you were reflecting on that today, as I'm sure you you know we all do, um, you know what might you add or what might you um, you want to consider further, or or would you say no? It's exactly the same. I'm, I'm curious. And also, so was uh, Josh. Shout out to Josh from More Small Possible World. So, so here, here's, here's a really interesting thing to me about, about Blood Meridian, right? Mm-hmm. So Blood Meridian, this masterpiece, there, there are parts of it that I find deeply frustrating. There are parts of it that I, I'm not sure people can actually make gunpowder out of piss in, in French, <laughs> but, but, you know, and the Spanish that's being spoken here, I have it. I have it. Anyway, um, Blood Meridian has one of the best endings of, of any book, right? It's just, he will never die is the dancing and, you know, but, but. Then it has this epilogue, and yeah. it's one of the best epilogues I've ever read because it's presented in this incredibly opaque way. What the hell is this guy doing? He's he's walking around. There's a thing. He's what you know. Well, what he's doing is he's building a fence. Mm-hmm. He's starting, and what you're seeing is the moment the Wild West as a concept comes to an end when people start to fence things off. And my particular reading of this, which might have no bearing on what Cormac McCarthy intended, and I don't care because my reading is all I care about. Uh, the book belongs to me while I read it. Right. My reading is that I'm, I'm I'm seeing someone tell me, you think the violence of wildness is bad? Wait till you see the violence of order. Mm-hmm. You think unbordered violence is bad? Wait till you see bordered violence. Wait till you see what happens when you superimpose a system. And this, I think, uh, I, w- I will never, I'm, I will never write a sentence uh, as good as anything Cormac McCarthy has ever written. But none of us will. <laughs> so much as, as um, there are similarities, I think of that, and I might be again, I might be superimposing my own interpretation of the text, but I do think a lot about how much worse our most animalistic impulses get when we are able to impose a veneer of of the civilized onto it. I'm pretty sure the cops in Atlanta don't call Cop City, Cop City. 
They do I'm not. sure they have some formal, very civilized name, you know, civilized sounding name for the whole endeavor. And I'm sure in all the official documents, there's some real clean language that describes all this stuff that they killed a protester over. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am terrified of structured, ordered violence. And so when you ask me about writing American War now, I would never write it now. I finished the first draft of American War a few weeks before Donald Trump announced he was running for president. Mm -hmm. And so this book that I really didn't intend to be about the United States in any kind of literal way is certainly not a prediction of a second civil war, which I I find to be ludicrous as 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 an endeavor, suddenly gets read. I mean, it comes out April of 2017, a few months into the Trump administration. And is suddenly on every list of like the first books of the Trump era and the books you need to read to understand this moment. And that's been great for my royalty statement. And I've sold a lot of books, a lot more books as a result. But there's a chasm between the book I wrote and the book that's read. Sure, That's fine now. I've come to terms with that. But I, I couldn't write American War right now because I would be chasing a moving target. Mm-hmm. Um, how cartoonishly evil do I have to make some of these characters to anticipate two years from now when this book is published, what these people will consider okay. If I had written anything that Trump did in his time as president into a novel in 2014, any editor would have completely cut it out, would have said, hey, this is, you know, you're pushing it. And so I'm not in the business of trying to chase moving targets. I've written things that extrapolate certain tendencies. I wrote a short story for, I think it was a Massachusetts Review, about a future in which the forest fire season in, in many parts of the country is, is a year long season. It's 365 days a year. And what you have is these little betting houses where you can go and place money on which community is yet to burn. Or they'll put, the, you can take the over under on like Crystal Creek. And then if Crystal Creek burns by the end of the day, you get, which to me is an extrapolation of a very American impulse, right? Yeah. Um, And then I found out that there's actually like weather betting, you know, that this isn't a real thing, Um, that this is actually, you know, in in some ways a real thing. Um, I've I've wandered into that world a couple of times, but always with the expectation that I'm never going to get it right and that I don't care if I get it literally right. What I'm trying to get at is an emotional or psychological impulse and the description of that impulse through fantastical, dystopian, speculative, whatever you want to call it, rather than, okay, here's, okay, so definitely they're going to pass this law on this day to, that's horseshit, that I'm not interested in. Um, Mm -hmm. I I shouldn't say that. I mean, there's some writers who do that very well. I'm not (laughs) one of those writers, and I I have no intention of being one of those writers. Are are you familiar, or have you read much uh, Kim Stanley Robinson? I have that poor guy was was quote unquote introduced to me in the dumbest possible way. I was I was asked oh, yeah. to do an interview for for NPR and I had no idea what what the context of the episode was, but they asked me a few questions about climate change and it was fine, you know, it went well. But the bulk of the interview, uh, the episode as it should have been was about Kim Stanley Robinson because he's much better known, much better writer, et cetera, et cetera. But at one point, I think I've never actually worked up the nerve to listen to this episode, but I think at one point they just played him some stuff I said and asked him to comment on it. And this guy has no idea who the hell I am. Like mm-hmm. it was just a, a very awkward way to set up an episode. Oh, wow. I've, yeah, I've read I've read quite a bit of his. Um, he he does he does something adjacent to what I was talking about very, very well. 
Yeah, just you may you you mentioning that made me think. Obviously, he's doing speculative. He's doing a lot. He's he's very prolific. Um, but you know, we we recently read Ministry for the Future, and I think of uh, uh, we 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 said in some ways, um, you know, in some ways that can be seen as very much like a sort of a good ending kind of book um, compared to you know some a lot of dystopian novels that are like bad ending. That's obviously reductive. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that's a that's a way of looking at it if you want to put it into two categories, which of course you can't. But um, yeah, it was a thing. It was a thing I was thinking of. We actually, in our Ministry for the Future episode, were, we, we had a sort of a running joke on what uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's American War and Omar Al-Akkad's uh, Ministry for the Future mm-hmm. would look like. Um, we were saying Omar Al-Akkad's Ministry for the Future, probably more focused on the drone attacks and the children of Kali <laughs> and all that. And Kim Stanley Robinson, much more interested in the economics of the MAG. Oh, yeah. You uh, get deep into the, the, like the, the sweatshops across the MAG, you know, the nature of the slums in the, around the you know, Atlanta perimeter, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the granularity of this new sort of um, of this new sort of uh, economy that's being cobbled together. Yeah, it's very. <laughs> but where I do see a commonality, um, you know, Quite a you know quite apart um, and quite of the fact that both books are bangers you know um, where I do see <laughs> where I do see good. a commonality here is that um, Kim Stanley Robinson describes himself as an eternal optimist right but he somebody he's somebody who uses optimism as like a cudgel right you know somebody who is a very angry optimist right and it's um, and it's something that I, because uh, you describe yourself as you know a pessimist by nature, but right, it's but there's that same sort of energy with this book I find, which is that you know this is the world, um, this is the world without any left organizing. You know, from our perspective, that's what we that's what that's uh, what we're thinking getting into it, right? But to pull out from that a little bit, right? As you say, you know, it's a world where people have been totally depoliticized, right? Where people have sort of been um siloed into their own agency right because you know they're organizing their political activity you know it's 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 ultimately come to naught because it's resulted in this right so i mean from both you know from the optimist angle from the pessimist angle you know from you know the worst and the best you know versions of the worst and the best uh possible worlds right you know you you get um you get a similar sort of call to action you know a a sort of call you know as you you know as you say like it's it the situation kind of defies description right and you know what what i imagine what i hope people are thinking about when they read a book like this is okay um what sort of prescription are we looking for right you know what what do we do given given this situation given this possibility um which is what happens when people when people pull back right it's you know you may not be able to bring about the best world, but, you know, you can sure as shit prevent the worst one, you know, and, you know, you're practically obligated to, you know, um, because, yeah, again, it defies, it defies description in that way, you know, I mean, what's, what, I mean, what was, what was striking to me when you said um, about, like, the um, resisting the Disneyfication of your story, right, is that that bit at the end, right, where Sarat, um, you know, refuses the medal from the, uh, from the FSS people, from, from the Braggs, right, you know, there's somebody, you know, it's it's in a sense, aesthetically kind of a sea change, right? Given our history, you know, a black queer woman repudiating the South and everything it stands for at the gates of Stone Mountain, right? And yet there's no, there's nothing to channel that revolutionary action into, right? You know, it's, it's, she sort of, she sort of takes that, you know, she sort of takes what, you know, we would want to be a kind of nice closing chapter on her history and just opens a new one which is the ultimate tragedy of the book, I think. 
so the, the one of the epigraphs of the book is from the the book of songs which um, is a um, an arab text and it's a collection of poems stories tales and uh it effectively translates to you know you must hurt the one who hurts you and that it's from it's from a very small story one of the many 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 that are in the book of songs book of songs is like 23 volumes or something like that mm -hmm. but the interesting thing about that particular story it's about two tribes and one tribe keeps sort of harassing and abusing the other tribe and finally they they get their revenge the interesting thing about that particular story is that there's a little asterisk a little footnote at the bottom that says we're not sure any of this actually happens <laughs> like this this might have just been all apocryphal um and and that that to me was a really interesting thing because the um the aftershocks don't don't necessarily even need an earthquake you you just mm -hmm. you you could have a ghost earthquake produce real aftershocks um the the this idea of of channeling what has been done to you and what you know is is really interesting to me because in a perfect world that would be the answer to so many problems um and yet we are in a situation where, for the most part, what people think of as active politics, the West Wing type stuff, where people are, are affecting policy and they're getting, you know, the, that shit's happening in fundraisers mm -hmm. where most of us could never afford a seat. Mm -hmm. um, the reward structure is inverted from what it should be the worst people I know I have met in the context of being backroom folks for various political operatives and, and the political operatives themselves. And if you are arguably the worst person in the country, you are rewarded with the presidency. And the, the, every community activist I know is broke. Mm -hmm. um, so you have a completely inverted reward structure. You have the trappings of actual active politics repeatedly shown to be siloed off to a portion of the population that is that effectively does not have to forget experience does not have to think about the problems of everybody else does not have to consider them as existing in the world mm -hmm. um and i'm not just talking about homelessness and hunger and the sort of big ticket stuff i'm talking about waiting in line to get on a plane I'm talking about effectively moving from right. point A to point B and having to interact with somebody on the street. So you have those two issues. And then on top of all of that, you have an incredibly insufficient political lexicon. Um, what is acceptable political language in this country, by which I mean the kind of stuff you can say on CNN. I don't mean right. the kind of stuff you can say when you knock door to door or when you're at a community activist meeting. I mean the stuff that the fat middle of the country will accept effectively does not allow for anything resembling a, an honest assessment of the situation as it is you have mm -hmm. to if you are running for any meaningful office for any major office you have to say that if you elect me everything will get better and nothing will get worse mm -hmm. now a lot of things are going to get worse if you elect me they're going to get worse <laughs> for a bunch of people who will barely notice it um, you know, they might have to buy a $400 million yacht instead of a $500 million one. But this this dreamland in which everybody gets a chicken in every pot and two cars in every garage, and, and it'll be even better for your kids and so on and so forth. 
is the language of, of a different kind of fiction. It's not a fiction I traffic in. And I think a lot of the construction of American war, not just the parts we spoke about, but the entire thing is predicated on this notion of a refusal to speak in the very neutered language of Absolutely. acceptable politics. Absolutely. I, I think that's I think that's a great point and that honesty is important and it's a very difficult thing. Yeah, honesty is not necessarily, at least to a lot of people, interesting. Honesty does, certainly doesn't sell as well as false promises. Um, that said, um, we are big here on Social Self Shelf believers, if we can be, in revolutionary optimism, as we say, a transformation of society in an optimistic way. Not to say that that's going to going to happen necessarily that we know, but trying to whether or not you know you believe in your head, try to believe in your heart with the work that you do. I know that that's mm -hmm. obviously important to all of us, and it's important to have a vision of building a better world. Mm -hmm. um, no matter what, because, you know, why else are we here? What else are we pursuing? Like we're saying, uh, you know, not being foolishly idealistic, but being, um, yeah. you know, seeing a realistic possibilities and how we can chase it. So um, as we sort of approach the end of this Aaron interview Murphy here, you know, yeah, as we approach sort of the end of this interview here, I want to ask what does, um, you know, there's a lot of things, of course, to give us pessimism and we should study them and understand them. What are some things, you know, recently that have given you optimism and what are your some things that you would recommend people look to work on, focus on? Um, and I'll leave that open ended. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I distinguish between hope as epilogue and hope as prologue. OK, sure. Uh, yeah. I think I think for me, you know, because because I think I agree with everything you just said completely. And I think sometimes I come off as like we're all fucked. So what's the point <laughs> sort of thing? And I, I get that. You know, I, I know that I have that vibe. But for okay. me, one of those two things is very, very important. And one of them is not. Um, hope as epilogue is not particularly useful to me. I think it comes from a privileged place that essentially assumes that no matter how badly we treat people, how much we screw up, how ruinous we make our politics or our systems, it's all going to work out in the end. You know, because that's what happens. Things work out in the end. That's the movies I watch. That's what happens mm -hmm. there. To me, that's not particularly useful. Hope as prologue is incredibly useful. Hope as a starting point for going out and doing the work is incredibly useful. So uh, one of the things recently that has been really inspiring to me, I was doing a, a feature for uh, Orion magazine about um um, wildfires in Oregon and, and, and what you, how you think about home and how you think about a place where you live when it's burning too quickly and too often to rebuild, uh, because there's some towns south, just south of where I live that still have not rebuilt from the 2020 forest fires. And, and anyway, this article ended up with me talking to a lot of emergency response people. And I remember interviewing this one woman who was saying, you know, for a lot of people in Oregon and Washington, particularly in Idaho, this notion of, of resilience or emergency preparedness is your little bunker and your weapons, your many, many weapons, and your sort of survivalist Mad Max approach to the world. And she's like, your biggest attribute asset when thinking about emergency preparedness is not your guns, it's not your silos, it's not your freeze-dried NASA food or whatever the hell you've got in that bunker. It's how well you know your neighbors. Mm. And so that there are people who are actively pushing this message of, listen, we might be in a climate crisis. There are certain things we could end all fossil fuels today and uh, the world would still warm for another hundred years. All of this is true, 
but community and your sense of giving a shit about the people around you and knowing that they give a shit about you is your central, like bridging that gap between the sense of community and self-interest is a really difficult thing. And I very rarely see it done well. And this seemed to be one of those areas. We're trying to convince people that giving a damn about the people in your community is a function of survival and a function of resilience gives me a lot of hope that that is a message that's being pushed. Because when I was in Florida doing that story, there was some European real estate huckster running around selling blueprints for mansions that were designed to float. So when the flooding showed up, your mansion just lifted up, right? So it's the opposite of that. It does, right? Multi-million dollar mansions are designed Mm. to float. Um, That's the opposite of what I'm talking about. So that gives me great hope. And I think anywhere where people can exert their effort along those axes, of simply giving a shit about the people around you as a function of, of uh, as a means of getting through whatever this is, the Anthropocene, whatever you want to call it, um, I think is time well spent. So that's, I'm not fit to give anybody advice on anything, but that's that's sort of where where I stand. Well, for someone who says yeah. he's not fit to give mm-hmm. anyone advice, I was going to say that's some pretty solid advice right there. Yeah, no, um, I completely agree. You know, get out, meet 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 your neighbors. You know, and just and just. Yeah, I mean, you know, you you seek you seek strength in community, you know, because that's the thing. Like it's 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 I mean, the thing about being an individual is that, you know, there is always there is always something bigger than you, you know. Mm, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Well, um we really appreciate you coming on. Um as as we sort of come to the end right here, I want to know um what projects are you have coming up that you want to talk about? What would you like to plug? What would you like what do you want people to know about what where where do you want to send people where do you want to send our listeners on this one um i'm currently working on a podcast uh called without where every episode is a look at at how the world's going to change once we run out of something or stop using something so we have episodes on sand we're using up sand at a ridiculous rate antibiotics uh unions we have an episode on the war on unions in this country um so that's happening right now and the second batch of episodes comes out in october um, sometime in the spring, I'm, I'm, I have this comedy project. It's a spinal tap type mockumentary. That's, uh, going to come out in sort of old timey radio play audio format oh, cool. uh, about a billionaire who wants to colonize Mars. It's called disrupt red. Um, and, uh, I'm sure a million other things that I'm forgetting, but those are, those are the two that come to mind. Fantastic. And if people want to, uh, you know, see more of your work, is there a website or what's your social media? Where, where should they go? I lost the password to omarlacad.com a few years ago and oh, I've been no. too lazy to replace. So you can go look at a very dated <laughs> bio. <laughs> um, otherwise you can find me on whatever the hell they call Twitter these days. I'm at uh, omarlacad and I tweet like once a month, but um, I'm not, I'm not hard to find. Yeah, X marks okay. the spot as it were. Uh, yeah. Something like that. <laughs> oh man. Well, we really appreciate you coming on again. Um, uh, thank you so much. And uh, just to all our listeners, I just want to say, you know, once again, go go and check out Omar's work. It's really, you know, it's really remarkable. Um, we've both enjoyed it, both from discussing it and also just from reading it. And uh, we'll definitely be following what he works on in the future. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. All right. Have a good one. Thank you.